This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. The Trump administration recently released a pilot bond program that will go into effect on December 24, 2020. This rule targets nationals from countries who hold high rates of visa overstays, incentivizing them to return home on time and avoid penalization. Erickson Immigration Group, Crystal Kears, dissects this ruling, its purpose, and potential impact it may have on foreign nationals in the coming months. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. So on Monday, November 23rd, President Donald Trump issued a new pilot program that would require travelers from roughly 24 countries that have held high rates of visa overstays to effectively pay a bond upon entry up to as much as $15,000. So Crystal, you were actually on the Immigration Nerds episode back when the White House first introduced a potential crackdown on visa overstays. That was on May 2nd, 2019, entitled Visa Overstays, A Crackdown or Posturing. Uh, that's for anyone who wants to go back for a refresher. Um, but tell us about this new program and what has developed since we have last talked on the subject. Of course. Thank you, Ian. So, you know, as we had discussed when the initial memorandum came out in April of 2019, that the administration wanted to look at visa overstays more closely and devise plans to try to prevent them moving forward. Um, you know, we knew that the, the State Department was tasked specifically with going in and, and trying to figure out some sort of solution to this issue. And so as a result, uh, what we're seeing now is that the Department of State has issued a temporary final rule introducing the six month visa bond pilot program. Um, to essentially meet that need of, of the president. Um, and so, as you mentioned, we, we went into detail about this memorandum uh, back in May of 2019. So I certainly encourage listeners to go back and, and listen to that podcast if they want more information about that memorandum. Uh, but essentially this program is gonna require that certain visitor visa applicants post a bond uh, before they're gonna be issued a visitor visa. So as I mentioned, it's a six month program. It's gonna start on December 24th of 2020 and it's gonna go until June 24th of 2021. Uh, the standard bond is gonna start off at $10,000 and then the consular officers will have the discretion to either lower the bond to $5,000 or raise the bond up to $15,000 depending on the personal circumstances of the individual applicant. Um, and just to give you know listeners a bit of a background, these figures, uh, the, the way in which they came up but these figures are based on the cost of removal of individuals who overstay their visa in the United States. Uh, and, and they're really not meant to be cost prohibitive, meaning uh, the point is not to make visa so expensive that the traveler can't obtain it, but rather it's meant to be, uh, it's meant to incentivize the visitor to exit the United States in a timely manner. Got it, understood. Um, so who will this impact? So this is a pilot program. So it's important to understand because it's really meant to target a very small group of affected applicants. Uh, the Department of State doesn't want to overburden consulates right now um, to see you know, if, if this program could work. So essentially those individuals who are gonna be impacted will be B1 or B2 visa applicants from countries with visa overstay rates that exceed 10% based on the fiscal year 2019 uh, Department of Homeland Security overstay report, 
in addition to that, they had to have been approved for an inadmissibility waiver. Uh, so that's really important because we're really looking at a small group of individuals here because these are individuals who have already been deemed by a consulate to be inadmissible to the United States, meaning, you know, whether they had previously misrepresented their intent on a visa, had previously overstayed in the United States. Uh, so this isn't just any applicant. These are, you know, a very small group of individuals. Uh, and so the Department of State estimates that it's actually only going to impact about 200 to 300 visas during the six month period. And it is important to note a couple of things here. It is strategic that they're looking at a small group. As I mentioned, they don't want to overburden the current system. They don't want to disrupt the visa process generally. Uh, they're just trying to look at the feasibility of this program on a bigger scale. Uh, but I do find it interesting that they're focusing primarily on one year's worth of information on visa overstays, as opposed to looking at a culmination of data. Uh, you know, we have these visa overstay reports for several years, so I'm not sure why they've decided just to look at a singular year for this, for this program, and they didn't state their reason behind that in the rule itself. Um, and so when we're looking at which countries are affected, there are a total of 23 countries that meet that 10% threshold. Uh, and, you know, as we had noted previously in the, the prior podcast about the memorandum, it, it disproportionately impacts African countries. So of the 23, 15 countries are located in Africa. Um, and, you know, just looking generally at the, the metrics in which they've utilized to determine who would be impacted. Uh, I, I still raise issue as I did in the earlier podcast with, with their metric. Uh, so they're using this overstay rate uh, and they're targeting countries with rates that exceed 10%. Uh, but that doesn't take into account the actual number of visa overstays, uh, which is important to note here. Um, because if you look at these 23 countries and you look at the total overstays from the report that they're citing to, the total number of visa overstays for all of these countries is only just a, a little above 8,000. And to put this in perspective, if you're looking at visa overstays from France, individuals who are traveling from France, that country alone had over 11,000 visa overstays in the same year. Mm -hmm. um, from that so one if country. the true concern yeah. here is by one country, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's not even, you know, the biggest offender. If you look at right. Brazil, you know they had an excess of thirty thousand visa overstays in a singular year. So if, mm -hmm. if the real concern here is the number of visa overstays and being able to control that issue, uh, I don't think that looking at this ten percent visa overstay rate is an effective uh, metric. I think they're quite simply just using the wrong metric here. Right. Okay. Interesting. So there possibly is a more efficient system out there that could be used to target the overstays that are most in, in question. So um, so are the travelers who have been approved for the visa waiver program impacted in any way? So no, the, this rule specifically states that the visa waiver program falls outside of the scope of the program. Uh, but I would like to to point out that none of the visa waiver countries are actually included in this program because none of those countries meet that 10% threshold. Um, so mm -hmm. they're not included, but they're, they really wouldn't even be implicated even if they were included. Okay, that's good to know. Um, I'm sure people will definitely be wondering about that. Um, so what can affected applicants expect the process to look like? 
if they're caught in this situation? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of back and forth through several different agencies to make this program possible. So essentially, uh, first and foremost, it's important that um, these applicants know who they are um, mm -hmm. before they go into the visa interview. Uh, How can what's they gonna happen know that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, looking at who, who is targeted. So it's an, if, you, if you're applying for a B1 or B2 visa and you're applying in one of these 23 countries, uh, so mm -hmm. you certainly wanna to go to the rule to look through the countries to determine you know, if you're applying in one of these countries. And then if you have in fact been approved for an inadmissibility waiver, um, those are the three things. Uh, there's really no indication in, in the rule itself whether or not consular officials will affirmatively tell applicants whether or not they're impacted by this pilot program or if they're gonna find out after the fact. So, so the way this is gonna work is following the visa interview, the consular officer will determine if the applicant falls within the, this pilot program. And if so, they will determine whether or not they're eligible for the visa. And if they you know, proceed with the visa application, they will then determine if a bond is gonna be uh, you know, enforced on this individual. Uh, once the officer has determined that, the officer will give the applicant a notice of the bond requirement along with the procedures to post the bond. It's not clear in the rule if this will be done at the end of the interview or if this will be a follow-up following the interview. Um, so that we're not sure of right now. Uh, but essentially the applicant will need to complete a form I-352, which is an immigration bond. It's an ICE form. Um, and then if the bond is necessary, this is actually interesting. So if the bond is necessary, the consular officer is actually going to deny the visa hmm. first, and then that denial can be overcome by proceeding with the, the posting of the bond with uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and so once that bond has been posted, the consular officer will then have the ability to issue the visa. And the visa that's gonna be issued under this pilot program is gonna be for a single entry, and it must be used within three months of its being issued. Uh, and that visa itself will have an annotation that indicates the bond requirement for this applicant. And even at this point, even once the bond has been posted, the consular officer still has the ability to ultimately leave the, the visa application as denied. Uh, if there are some other inadmissibility concerns or some other concerns with the application that wasn't, uh, you know, uh, cleared up by the inadmissibility waiver. So if for whatever reason, the visa is still denied even after posting the bond, the applicant then can request a cancellation of that bond to get their money back. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, the applicant would then travel to the United States if they decide to. And then what happens afterwards is once they've departed the United States, the visa holder is going to have to request the cancellation of the bond, provided that they can show that they haven't violated any of the terms of the visitor visa. So they're really putting the burden on the visa holder here uh, to show that they have substantially performed uh, with the terms of the visa status. So what they're looking for here is that the, the visa holder upon departure from the United States should present themselves back to the consular officer uh, officials within 30 days of their departure from the United States to confirm their identity and to pr provide evidence of their timely departure. And the rule provides, you know, several suggested forms of evidence to show to the consulate, which includes the, uh, excuse me, the original boarding passes used to depart the United States, uh, photocopies of the entry and departure stamps that are in the passport, pay stubs to show employment outside of the United States following departure, 
bank and or credit card records to show transactions outside of the United States following their departure and or school records to show that they're attending school at a university or college outside of the United States following the, their departure. Um, and so once all of that information is provided to the consulate, the consulate then takes that information and sends it over to ICE so that um, ICE can determine whether or not the bond was breached because that's within their authority. Uh, if ICE uh, deems that there's been no breach, then the visa holder gets their bond back plus any accrued interest during the time in which the government held those funds. And then if it's breached, the bond uh, is not returned, but the accrued interest is returned. And if the visa holder, you know, the, the, the applicant who received the visa decided that they never wanted to travel, they can request a cancellation of the bond, but only after the three month period uh, listed on the visa, because, you know, the consulate needs to ensure that even if they request a bond before that they're, that they're not planning on traveling, that they actually don't have the ability to travel because that visa has been canceled. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Very dense. <laughs> so it's a, it's a long, yeah, it's a long process. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not something that's easy. It doesn't seem like it would be easy to implement. And there are several different steps and stages. And as I mentioned, different agencies, because uh, it's not mm -hmm. only the Department of State with the consulates, it's also, you know, the Department of Homeland Security and ICE together. Right. And when you uh, mention about the cost of this program, where start at 10,000, but is up to the officer's discretion whether to raise it or, or lower it. Do we have any insight on their determination practices and on what they're actually looking for to uh, determine the actual amount they're uh, requesting? Yes. Um, so they're, they're looking at the personal circumstances of the applicant. So as I mentioned previously, they don't want to place the bond so high that it would just be impossible to pay. So sure. they are gonna look at things like, uh, you know, the income of the applicant, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and in general, they're looking at this from a totality of the circumstances. So it's incumbent on the applicant to become, you know, come prepared to the visa interview to show this evidence. But essentially, they're going to look at the income of the applicant. And then they're going to look at what close contacts or ties does the applicant have to the United States that may indicate that they, they won't actually leave the U.S. And they have, there's more of a, a likelihood that they would, you know, overstay um, their, their time in the United States, particularly looking at like close family members. For instance, mm -hmm. if you're applying and you have, and both of your parents are in the United States and all of your siblings are in the United States and you're the only one of your immediate family members living outside the United States and you're going to the, uh, to the United States to visit your family, that will likely be held against you unless you can show your significant ties to your home country. Um, mm -hmm. So that can look like, uh, you know, if you are maintaining employment outside the United States, if you have uh, additional close family members like dependent children that you're, uh, you know, keeping in your home country while you take this travel. Uh, and then also I always encourage uh, applicants whenever they're looking to show their ties outside the United States to provide to CBP officers and consular officers evidence of a non-refundable return flight home, um, showing that it would actually cost you significant funds to cancel that, that flight home or to reschedule it so that you do in fact intend, you need to be able to show to the consular officer that you are, you're intending to exit the United States um, at the end of your authorized stay. Got it. Um, so for those who are actually affected, certain applicants, uh, what would you like them to know about this program? 
So make sure first and foremost that you can identify yourself as being an impacted um, applicant. And if you're not sure, I encourage that you reach out to legal counsel. Um, and then come, come prepared to your visa interview. Bring all of this evidence with you to show that you do intend to exit the United States uh, and that your intent is not to overstay your visa. And then you can also request at your interview a waiver um, from this bond process, even if you are an impacted applicant. There is no formal bond waiver process uh, to be put in place by the Department of State through this program, but you certainly as an applicant can request it at your visa interview. And they're looking at, you know, if there's any humanitarian or national interest uh, based reasons to waive an applicant from the bond requirement. Um, so if you have any of that evidence, you know, I encourage that you bring it with you. And then lastly, you know, if you, since these, these are, um, you know, visitor visas that are being targeted, which is, you know, just for business or for tourism, if you can just consider planning your trip once the pilot program is over. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're thinking about a trip sometime in the spring, maybe push it back into the summer, because even though it's just a six month program, any bond that's gonna be issued during the duration of the program will actually remain in effect until that bond is either breached or canceled, meaning you have returned to your home country um, or you have breached the agreement and then uh, the US government gets to seize those funds. Um, so that would be my general recommendations for individuals who are applying under this pilot program. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about the administrative cost that's associated? Yeah, so in the rule, they have uh, done some calculation of what this, these costs will look like uh, and roughly to the tune of about $3.1 million. I will say that um, there are some questionable cost calculations contained in this rule that I'd like to just briefly uh, overview for our listeners. So uh, the bulk of this cost is coming from the bond themselves. Uh, so they're assuming in the cost section that the upper limit of the 300 visas uh, that they anticipate will be impacted will be issued, requiring a bond on average uh, $10,000 a bond, uh, you know, per visa, because that's that starting number. So that's where we get the $3 million from. And then uh, they estimate that it will take about 30 minutes to complete this uh, immigration bond form, which I do think is a reasonable estimation of time, uh, taking a look at the form myself. Uh, but they don't actually attribute any sort of cost to that. Now, if, if they were to attribute a cost based on you know, their reasoning for, for total you know, cost to applicants, that should be about $6,000 based on uh, Department of State figures. But it's also important to note here that there's no assumption in these costs that an attorney would assist with the filing um, or you know, preparation of the visa applicant for this visa waiver, or um, excuse me, for this bond program. And you know, ordinarily, I would say attorneys generally don't get involved too heavily in a standard visitor visa application because it's quite, you know, it, it's pretty standard. It's a standard process. You're coming into the United States to be a, a tourist. Millions of people across the globe do that uh, every year. But this is interesting because as we discussed, we're looking at only individuals who have an approved inadmissibility waiver from DHS. Meaning, I mean, 
I would say that it's more likely that these particular individuals already are represented by counsel to get that waiver approved because the waiver process is so complicated in, in and of itself. So I think that it's more likely that that attorney helping on the inadmissibility waiver would likely go ahead and assist the applicant through the rest of this procedure in getting the visa actually issued. Um, so I do think that that's a misstep on, on the State Department side and not calculating that cost, or at least not even considering it as a potential cost. Um, and then the next cost that they lay out is, I think, particularly egregious. So they estimate about $25,000, which accounts for two hours of the applicant's time to not only arrange for the posting of a bond, but also to return to the consulate following their departure from the United States to go ahead and request that cancellation. This is an artificially low estimation because as we mentioned, we're looking primarily at African countries that generally don't have a ton of visitors that come to the United States anyway. So they don't have, um, you know, these are not countries that have multiple consulates and embassies within, you know, their jurisdiction. So, uh, you know, just to put this in perspective for listeners, looking at uh, Sudan, Sudan, which is one of the countries mentioned uh, in this pilot program, they have a singular embassy in Khartoum and if you're living in Northern Sudan, it could take you 12 hours to get to the embassy. So they don't give any sort of reason or breakdown as to why they're only estimating that that time period would take two hours. Um, so I would have expected a little bit more breakdown um, from the department. And then also something that is um, noteworthy here is that they're utilizing US wages to calculate the cost burden to applicants. So when they're looking at that two hour time for the applicant, they're taking that out of a, a work day, so to speak, um, into calculating that cost to the applicant, but they're utilizing US wages. And it's just a bit ironic because the visa category that we're looking at here prohibits work in the United States. So why US wages are even contemplated uh, is a mystery. It's a bit of a flawed analysis in my opinion. Um, and then some of the other calculations of cost is $5,000 for um, familiarization cost uh, for uh, the nine current US uh, government approved surety companies because more than likely many of these applicants are not gonna be able to post bond these bonds with their own cash. They're gonna have to actually go to a company to post that bond for them. And then they only estimate roughly $71,000 in government cost, um, alleging that it would take ICE six hours to process the bond um, procedure and then only 30 minutes of additional work for consular officers to implement this pilot program, you know, within the visa approval process. So um, they also, you know, fail to calculate the cost of bond breaches, which I'm not sure why they wouldn't have just assumed that for purposes of calculating costs, assume that all of these visas would be breached uh, during this program, since kind of what they're looking at is an expectation that, you know, some of these individuals would in fact overstay their visa and breach the bond. Uh, so, you know, in general, I think it's it's just um, a missed analysis. I don't think that they, they spent enough time uh, completing that, but, you know, in their defense, the whole point of this pilot program is to determine the feas uh, feasibility of the program, including the cost. So we will certainly find out much more uh, about the cost and, and it'll be interesting to see whether or not they're higher than these estimations at the end of the pilot program. Got it. And since this is uh, a six month program, does it still have the chance to be reinstated after the six months? Um, it certainly does. So the, the main purpose behind this program is really to determine the feasibility of 
of a larger scale uh, visa bond program. So, you know, they're not seeking to determine whether or not this is actually an effective tool um, okay. to root out visa overstays, which that is actually, you know, a very important distinction here um, mm -hmm. from a procedural aspect, because it is repeated in this rule several times that this is this the purpose of this pilot program is to be a message to countries with this, uh, you know, visa overstay rate that exceeds 10% mm -hmm. uh, in an effort to encourage their governments uh, of these countries to take action to prevent visa overstays mm -hmm. of their citizens. And the reason that that is so vitally important from a procedural aspect is this is the way in which uh, the Department of State can avoid having to um, give any sort of formal notice and comment period mm -hmm. under the Administrative Procedures Act. So it's called a foreign affairs exception. And um, you know, in this, in this rule, Department of State is alleging that the program is a tool of diplomacy to influence actions by certain governments that are high priority of the president, meaning this is a foreign policy rule. This is not a correction of the visa overstay, which is really in um, conflict with the earlier memorandum. The whole concern with that memorandum that this is a result of is the actual visa overstay and the burden on the US immigration system. So I do think that this is where we may see some litigation, if any, um, just because the current administration has tried to use exceptions of the notice and comment period quite frequently in their rules, uh, particularly their immigration related rules. Uh, and several of those rules has been struck down uh, as a result. So we can see some pushback. And I think it's also worth mentioning here it's surprising that they're taking this route of the bond program because it is it goes against longstanding Department of State policy that bonds should rarely, if ever, be used as a mechanism to prevent overstays because it's such a cumbersome process, as I laid out for the department. It'll be interesting to see as a result of this what reports come out as far as you know the final costs uh, and the actual feasibility of a larger scale program being implemented. I think at that point in time, we'll know whether or not they're gonna take steps to implement this moving forward or if they're gonna abandon it altogether. Thank you to Lee Researcher, Con Branch, Assistant Producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMM Nerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.